In American society, money is a taboo topic. We're taught at a young age it's improper to talk about it, but we're also bombarded with messages about the power and importance of money in our everyday lives. And by not talking about it, we miss out on the skills and lessons we need to effectively understand and financially plan. That changes today. Welcome to Money Tales. Hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder, Money Tales brings more than 35 years of combined professional experience in personal finance to demystify money and demonstrate what it's like to speak openly about personal financial matters. Join us each episode as they interview modern-day movers and shakers about how money decisions intertwine with their daily lives in order to give you better insight into productive financial conversations. Subscribe today and register for our blog, Fathom, at aspirient.com slash podcasts to increase your money mojo. And now, here's Cammie and Sandy. Tracy Conan is our guest this week on Money Tales. When Tracy went to college, she decided to major in criminology and law studies because she wanted to become a prison warden. However, sophomore year, she took an elective called Financial Crime Investigations, and she loved it. The course changed the trajectory of Tracy's focus, and she's now a forensic accountant. In that role, her goal is to help a thousand women a year have better financial outcomes from their divorces. Today, Tracy runs her own business. Her job is to find money in cases of corporate fraud, high net worth divorces, and other financial shenanigans. Tracy does a lot of work with corporations, investigating situations when executives have stolen money or companies are fighting with other companies about money. She also does fraud investigations related to divorces for wealthy people, where she's tracing money, trying to figure out how much they have, where their money is gone, what they've been spending it on, and in some cases, where they're hiding money. Tracy is also the author of several books, and she's the creator of The Divorce Money Guide. Here are three key money topics Tracy hits on in this conversation. First, what it was like when she was starting her business and couldn't afford to go out with her friends. Tracy was embarrassed to talk about it, and at least one of her friendships suffered as a result. Second, how she intentionally scaled her business without staff, leveraging software and budgeting like crazy. And third, a reminder that when you love what you do, you'll likely be really good at it and the money will follow as a result. We hope you share this episode with a friend and please subscribe to Money Tales on your favorite podcast platform. Now on to our conversation with Tracy Conan. Welcome to the Money Tales podcast. I'm Cammie Doder. And I'm Sandy Brager. Sandy, at dinner the other night, my older daughter, who's eight, she shared with us that she wants to start a newspaper. Ooh, why a newspaper, Cammie? <laughs> I'll get there. What I loved is first, my reaction. I was so proud to hear she wanted to start a newspaper. I'm like, wow, well, that's really fantastic. You want to share news. You want to write. This is great. Why do you want to start a business? Why do you want to start a newspaper? She said, because I want money. <laughs> Ooh, all this monopoly playing and the home money conversations, they're landing. They really are. But really the drive is because, and she told me this and I love this as well. She wants more books. She wants to go to the bookstore and buy more books. That's what she wants money for. So why a newspaper? So I'm all proud. This is great. It's because she's been reading in another book, a kid's book, a series called Ivy and Bean. I know that series. You know, the main characters, 
want to make money. And so they started a newspaper. So there wasn't some like, I want to go spread good news across the neighborhood. They already had the inspiration. But I love that their mind is connecting value with money and how they can bring in money in different ways. My younger daughter was, of course, saying, yeah, I want to do this too. Now, here's the unfortunate thing. I didn't get a chance to ask her, how do you price your newspaper? But I'll tell you, I'm going to bring that to you next time because we'll bring it up again. When you say that she wants to start a newspaper, my first thought was, did you inform her the harsh realities of the newspaper business these days and how hard it is to make money? Tracy, I was thinking those exact things like, really, you're going to make money in a really hard industry? Of course, I was thinking, Cammie, doesn't she know about the library? She could get books for free. We talked about free books. Her comment was, but I like to hold them and own them. Okay. All right. All right. But we do go to the library. We love the library. Oh, well, that's a fun story. I'm glad that they're thinking through these ideas and that they're getting modeling from what they're reading and inspiration. It's a great form of money conversation. It really is. And I love that these things can happen in so many different ways. It doesn't have to be a formal sit down with them to talk about money. It comes up in so many different veins. We heard from our guest, Tracy Conan. Why don't we welcome you now to the Money Tales podcast? Hi, Tracy. Hello, and thank you for the official welcome. I just couldn't help but chime in early on before I had been introduced. I'm glad you did. That was a great comment. Tracy, would you introduce yourself and in doing so provide a couple pivotal moments that have taken place in your life that really impacted who you are today? I'm Tracy Conan. I am a forensic accountant, and that means that I find money. So I do fraud investigations, and a lot of that work is on the corporate side when executives have stolen money or companies are fighting with other companies about money and they need someone to figure out who caused who to lose money, how much money was lost, and then can you please testify as an expert witness? But I also do fraud investigations related to divorces for wealthy people. So I am tracing money, trying to figure out how much they have, where their money has gone, what they've been spending it on. And in some cases, is there hidden money? Sometimes we're really just looking for just facts about what has money been spent on. Other times, one spouse is suspicious that the other has been siphoning off money, hiding sources of income and things like that. That's the interesting stuff I get to do in that regard. A pivotal thing for me in my life as it relates to money is really indirect. As I was growing up, my dad worked in a factory. My mom was a stay-at-home mom. She stayed home with my brother and me. We didn't have a lot, but we always had enough. And my parents' first priority was always our home. We grew up at the time when mortgage interest rates were really, really, really high. I believe I recall my parents talking about an 18% interest rate, something ridiculous like that. Can you imagine? That would just make me sick. My parents were committed to making a double mortgage payment every month just to knock that mortgage out. We were the kind of family that during summer, we grew a pretty extensive garden and the money that was saved on groceries in the summer was used to buy Christmas gifts. And our Christmas gifts were things like new school clothes, new pajamas, socks, necessities, things that we needed. And we didn't know the difference. We were like, hey, new pajamas. This is wonderful, right? So indirectly through all of that, I was constantly being modeled, budgeting, 
and living within your means. You know, a credit card was never used by my parents when we were growing up. It just wasn't even considered. They said, nope, if we don't have the money to pay for something, we save our money until we have the money to pay for it. I earned an allowance. I did babysitting as soon as I was able to. And if there were things that I wanted, I was taught that you save. And then when you have your money saved, you get those things that you want. You make careful choices, right? I was always taught about making these careful choices. Tracy, you've been having money conversations, it sounds like, all your life. I have. I'm curious, you talked about the modeling your parents did, but also referenced the mortgage and paying down that debt. Were your parents speaking with you directly about money? They were teaching me things like teaching me how you write a check and how you open a bank account. They would take me to the bank to take my savings from my allowance, my babysitting money to put it in the bank and things like that. So I remember those conversations. I think that what it really became is really something that was incorporated into everyday life. So it wasn't very often like a sit down at the kitchen table so we can teach you something about money. It was the conversation during dinner of, well, we have a car repair that we need to make and here's how we're going to pay for it, right? It was just an everyday conversation. They were teaching us that way. Tracy, did you think much about money growing up? I did not. It's interesting to me now that it never occurred to me as I was growing up that I was lower class. I knew that I wasn't one of the quote rich kids in school, but beyond that, I didn't really think much about how much we had or didn't have. And I consider myself lucky because we did have all of our basic needs met and more. We had a very nice house that my parents kept up very, very well. And so it never occurred to me. When did you become more aware of money and the different amounts of money that different people in your life had access to? I guess in college, it became more apparent to me because... I went to a private school. My parents were able to contribute some money to that, but for the most part, it was done through loans and through working. And so I worked full-time plus in the summers and saved as much as I could to be able to put towards tuition. And during the school year, I always worked at least 20 hours a week at a job along with a full load of classes, if not more, so that I would have spending money and other necessities paid for. And so I had some friends in college who didn't have to work and whose parents just wrote a check every semester for whatever they needed and then sent them money every week or something like that. So I did start becoming aware of it then. And I thought, gosh, how lucky for them and would be nice if I didn't have to work, but oh, well, here I go to work. I never had a resentment for it. I just had an awareness. And just kept working. I just kept working. When you finished up with college, What drove these decisions when you decided your career choice? Was it money? Were there other factors? It wasn't money. Money was a very secondary thought. I wanted to do something that would allow me to have a decent lifestyle, but I never thought that I would be considered rich or anything like that. We all have the fantasies, but the reality was I want to have a career that I enjoy that earns me enough that I feel like I have a good lifestyle. So when I went to college, I decided to do a major in criminology and law studies, and I wanted to become a prison warden. Why? Because I had a fascination with the criminal justice system, and I felt that I could make a really positive impact there. I felt that prison warden gave me an opportunity to really impact not only the people 
housed in prisons, but the people who work at the prisons and also help the victims in a way. You know, I saw a lot of problems in the criminal justice system, as we still see today. And I felt that, hey, the way that we fix that is, you know, one person at a time. And so I'm going to be that one person. It fit my goal of what am I interested in, as well as what can I make positive change with. But things got upended a little bit. My sophomore year, I took an elective called Financial Crime Investigations. It was a class that was offered only once every three or four years. It popped up on the available list of classes. And I thought, gosh, if I ever want to take this before I graduate, I better take it now. I took it and I loved it. And I am now a forensic accountant. And off you went. Off I went. So tell us about that. What grabbed you from that course? I've always been a nosy person. And getting down and dirty into investigations just really spoke to me. And going down that rabbit hole and looking through the numbers, trying to put together that puzzle, finding that smoking gun. Oh, I just love it all. So you dove right into money after college. Yeah, I sure did. What impact did that have on your own personal financial choices that you were making for yourself, Tracy? None. It really didn't. I mean, I came out of school and I worked for a period of time as a probation officer while I was trying to sort out how to get to where I am now as a forensic accountant. But then I went into the accounting field officially and I made what I thought was a decent salary at the time. I had enough to pay my rent and do all the things. I did have ideas of, well, I guess someday maybe I'll be a partner at an accounting firm. And then you make the big money when you're a partner. So that was on the radar for sure. I worked for a year and a half at Arthur Anderson when they still existed. And I left there to go to a small forensic accounting firm, which I worked at for a couple of years. But after a couple of years, I realized that I was never going to be a partner at this particular firm. And I thought to myself, if I'm going to leave, I'm probably going to leave within another couple of years. I'm probably going to start my own firm. What am I waiting for? So as unprepared as possible with no professional network, no clients of my own, no money saved and no backup plan, I left there to start my own forensic accounting firm. Isn't that the greatest way to do it? I think it's fantastic and frightening all at the same time. Tell us how you did it. Did you budget? Your parents had taught you how to budget. Were you budgeting and preparing for this big leap? I was budgeting. So here's what I did when I decided I was going to take this leap and leave my job and my paycheck. And I knew I had no money set aside. I immediately called a temp agency who temped out accountants and started working for them on a contract basis. I was able to earn enough to pay my rent with that while I was trying to wrangle up some clients for my new forensic accounting business. And I ate a lot of ramen and mac and cheese. I cut everywhere I could cut. I found some side work for cash here and there and just figured out how to make it work. You hustled. Yeah. Tracy, as you look back on that period of time in your life, were you talking with your friends and family about what you were doing, what you were trying to achieve for yourself? No. I mean, my family understood that I wanted to be an entrepreneur and have a business, but that was about the extent of what we talked about. It was really interesting. I had a very close friend that I'd been friends with for years and years and years, and we had typically gone out to dinner 
on a weekly basis. That was kind of how we would catch up. And that was our thing to just go to dinner. Where do you want to go this week? And I started this business and I couldn't afford to go to dinner anymore, but I didn't want to tell her. I would say, oh gosh, sorry, can't go too busy. And after a number of weeks of this, she lit into me and said, all you care about is money. You'll learn one day in your life that friends and family are more important than money. I am so sorry that you are so money hungry that all you can see is working, working, working. And, you know, we're going to need to take a friend break. Wow. How did you respond? I said, okay. You're still embarrassed? I was embarrassed that I wasn't making money. And at that point, the way she yelled at me about this, my feelings were so raw. I mean, you think like, well, why didn't you just tell her at that point? Oh, no, it's just that I couldn't afford it. She was so ugly to me and how she told me this that I just thought I'm not going to share that with her. Got it. So she was opening the door, but she wasn't opening it in a kind, supportive way. Not at all. Are you still friends today? No, we became friends again and we're friends for a period of time. And then the friendship sort of just, you know, one of those that faded away. Ultimately. We just were not on the same plane. She just could never understand my drive for entrepreneurship and work. Thanks for sharing that. Tracy, tell us about building this business. It's really amazing. I I love entrepreneurs. I love hearing their story. Tell us about it and where it's been and where it's going. I started the business 23 years ago and basically the entire time I've been a solo practitioner. I did have a period where I started adding staff and the staff that I hired didn't work out. But then I also realized that I didn't want staff. I realized that that really, that's the traditional way that you grow an accounting firm, but I realized that that wasn't working for me. So I committed to staying a solo, which some people don't want to call me an entrepreneur. They don't want to call this a business. They want to say something like, you're a solopreneur. Okay, call me whatever you want. I don't care. I still got what I got. What I ended up doing was figuring out how I could scale my business without staff. Back in 2010, I started using some software that I told people, was the equivalent of me having two or three staff people working for me. It was doing things with data for me that most firms were doing manually with staff sitting there, you know, keying things into spreadsheets and things like that. So that in 2010 was really when I started to realize that there was a way to scale this without staff. And I just kept basically creating systems and processes to standardize things and to make tasks go faster. A lot of what I do deals with bank statements, credit card statements, tax returns, getting data off of those documents, whether they're paper or digital, getting it into a database and then manipulating that data to follow the money, to find irregularities. I figured out that if I could streamline that process of getting the numbers off the documents into that database, if I could create a process or a system or a software that did some of the analysis that I otherwise would have done on that database manually, I could scale and earn a lot more money. And that's what you did. That's what I did. When I started the business 23 years ago, I started doing fixed fee work, fixed fees only, no hourly fees. Wow. To this day, most of my peers still use hourly fees. I've always said, 
I'm not selling you my time. I'm selling you my expertise. I'm selling you a result in your case. That result is you want the answers about the numbers. You want to know where the money went. I'm going to sell you that result for a fixed fee. Between creating processes and tools and software and using fixed fees, I can earn more than I could if I did it hourly or if I didn't have these systems in place. So in the last couple of years, I've been adding to my team on a contract basis, and it's actually been going really well. So it's contractors who are available when I need them, but I'm finding myself using them more and more and more. And because I have things standardized, I'm able to push work to them. They know exactly what to do. We know exactly what the result is going to be. It is a beautiful thing. Sounds like you've mastered scale, Tracy. Congratulations on that. I'm curious, you said when you first got into forensic accounting that it didn't really change your relationship with money, but I'm wondering, having become a forensic accounting expert, someone who can find the money, how has that informed the way you make money decisions today? You know where people hide things. Well, certainly I do. And I budget like crazy for myself. I download my transactions every morning and look at them and make sure none of my accounts are compromised and I see where I've been spending all my money. So certainly I take a very detailed approach looking at my own money. As a forensic accountant, you find money. Tell us how that feels. I love it so much. I feel so fortunate that I have found the career I'm supposed to be doing. Not only do I like it, I'm really good at it. What is really interesting to me is being able to dig into the details and look at 20 or 30,000 transactions to find the answer to something, but to dig into those details without losing sight of the bigger picture. I see sometimes with younger people who are learning or with when I used to teach forensic accounting at the college level, I would see these students, they would dig into the details, but then they would lose sight of the big picture. So they would be in some details and they'd come running back to me and say, oh gosh, look what we found in these details. And I would say, but what does that matter to our overall goal of this investigation? Does this get us to where we need to be for the investigation? And so teaching that was interesting. And I found that I was always good at that. You have your eye on the details. You're keeping the big picture in mind. Tell us about communicating what you're learning from these investigations to the people that you're serving. The communicating is so great. Some of the things that I really enjoy about what I do, aside from just digging into the numbers, is the strategy. My clients are attorneys on behalf of their clients who are getting divorced or who are involved in a lawsuit or who are involved in a fraud situation, maybe as a victim, maybe even as a defendant in a criminal case. And I like working with the attorneys on coming up with a strategy for approaching things or a strategy for litigating or defending. But I also like that piece of communicating my findings. So what you would see if you read one of my reports in one of my cases is that I use very plain language and my reports are much shorter than other experts. And I've had attorneys sometimes push back on me with that and say, oh gosh, can't you write a longer report? Well, I suppose I could. But what I'm trying to do is focus on the issues that the judge and the jury need to know about. And I'm assuming that they're not accountants. 
I'm assuming that they're starting from square one and they need to be taken from point A to B to C to D without a whole bunch of accounting jargon. And they need to know, they need the facts, what happened with the money. So the communicating piece to me is not hard. I'm doing it from the standpoint of plain language, but in some of these cases, especially divorce, there is some empathy that needs to be involved in this communication. It's a very emotional situation that can sometimes be a little more difficult. Let's dive into that. If I'm finding that a spouse was hiding money or having an affair and spending a lot of money on the affair partner, it is a difficult conversation. But in most of those cases, my client has already had suspicions and my work is simply confirming those suspicions. The approach that I end up taking is now we know. Now we know exactly what happened. We can quantify what happened. Your attorney can go in front of the judge with the facts and can ask for you to be given back your half of the money that has been siphoned off or spent. And so for my clients, having the answer is overwhelmingly the most important part, even though, yes, the underlying details can be hurtful, but most of them already had a pretty good gut feel and knew what was going on. Yeah, those answers I can imagine are very liberating. Tracy, you wrote the Divorce Money Guide recently. Tell us about why you wrote this and what your goals are with it. Last year, I was in one of my coaching programs in a breakout room, and we were talking about things about our businesses that bothered us. And the question we were supposed to answer was, if it didn't bother you, what would your business look like? And what bothered me on that particular day was that I received so many phone calls from women who are in the process of divorce, who have suspicions about what their husbands have been doing with the money, but who are in a position where they can't hire a forensic accountant. And typically it's because they can't afford one. And I had nowhere to send them. There was no resource out there. And their attorneys would tell them, if you can't hire a forensic accountant, then there's really not much we can do as far as looking into our concerns about the money. So I wanted an option for them. I was bothered by that. I said, gosh, there's no option. It really bothers me. And I thought, why can't I make the solution for them? So I came up with the idea of the divorce money guide. I call it an online handbook, but it's videos and worksheets and checklists. So I walk people through a 10-step process of showing them what the financial piece of their divorce is going to look like and what's going to happen there, what financial documents they need, how they get those documents and what to look for in them to answer the questions they have about the money. And the goal with it is to help 1,000 women a year have better financial outcomes in their divorces. And how are you keeping track to reach that goal? Every person who buys the divorce money guide and gets started with it counts as one towards the thousand. If they are investing in this process, they are automatically going to have a better financial outcome, meaning they're going to know more about their money. They're going to be better equipped when it comes to negotiating about things. They're going to feel more confident. And that might even be the most important piece. Yes, the dollars and cents are important. What they get at the end of the divorce is important for sure. But just doing something like using the divorce money guide is bringing confidence And that is priceless. Sounds like it's embedded with your, so now you know, approach, which is great. Tracy, as you look at your life today, how do you define success for yourself? Success is 
feeling intellectually stimulated, feeling like I'm making a difference to other people and doing good work. I love my work. And the success there, we tend to measure in terms of how much money we make. And while that's certainly, I enjoy money, I don't lie about that, but my success there isn't focused on money. It's really focused on helping people. How many people can I help? How am I helping them? That's really where success professionally is for me. And then in my personal life, it is being able to enjoy what I have created from my work. So that is, you know, being able to live in a home that is comfortable to me and being able to travel to places that interest me. So success has a lot of components to it for me. It's a beautiful answer. Tracy, tell us what's your next money conversation going to be in and who's it going to be with? The first thing I want to do is go look at my calendar, right? Because <laughs> that's probably going to dictate what that next money conversation is. It's going to be a work-related conversation because I have a number of cases going on right now that are really heating up. This is going to be a summer of a lot of work. I have a number of trials coming up. And so that's probably where that next money conversation will be with a client who has a trial coming up. You're helping a lot of people. It's such a important skill you have and passion and it's contagious. Tell our listeners where they can find you. Well, they can find me at my website, fraudcoach.com because I am your fraud coach throughout your divorce. And on my website, I have created a landing page specifically for the listeners of this podcast. That landing page is fraudcoach.com forward slash money tales, all one word. And there they're going to find links to some resources, the divorce money guide, my new book, find me the money that's just come out. They can read up and have a blast on that page. Tracy, thank you for joining us on the Money Tales podcast. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Money Tales podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, share it with someone you think would benefit from listening and leave us a review on your favorite podcasting platform. Your ratings and reviews help more people find our podcast. If you're inspired to gain clarity and peace of mind about financial matters, don't hesitate to reach out to our team at Asperient. Go to asperient.com forward slash start a dialogue. Or you can email Sandy and me at podcasts at See you next time.